It's week three of 2022. I'm Smitha Nair. This is your weekly fix. In 1972, Mathura, a young Adivasi girl from Maharashtra, was raped by two policemen inside a police station. The case went up to the Supreme Court, which acquitted the accused. The court held that Mathura had not raised an alarm. The lack of visible injury marks on her showed there was no struggle or resistance on her part. And that, because she had a history of premarital sex, she might have incited the cops. The widespread protests that followed resulted in the first changes in India's rape laws. But it was only in 2002 that we did away with the clause in the Evidence Act that said, when a man is prosecuted for rape, he may show that the prosecutrix, which is the victim, was of generally immoral character. Why do we see the defence invoke past sexual history of the victim in almost every rape case? Well, since consent, rather the lack of it, is what the case is based on, the past sexual history of the victim is used to suggest that she must have consented to sexual intercourse with the accused, as she generally consents to it with other men as well. Anyway, the changes in the Rape Law and the Evidence Act in 2002 and subsequently the 2013 Criminal Law Amendment in the wake of the Delhi gang rape were meant to put an end to this method of discrediting the testimony and evidence of the victim. But these rape myths continue to make their way into judgments even today. The judgment of the trial court acquitting Bishop Franco Mulakal accused of raping a nun is a case in point. Why is this happening? Does this judgment set back the hard-fought gains made over the last four decades? Let's ask Flavia Agnes, women's rights lawyer and pioneer of the women's movement in India. I want to state a trigger warning here. The following conversation contains descriptions of sexual assault and rape as documented in the judgment. Ma'am, thank you for making the time. While discrediting the victim's testimony, the judgment lists what it says are contradictory versions given by her to different persons at different points of time. Primarily, much has been made about the fact that she told two of her companions that the bishop is, quote, forcing her to share his bed with him, and that she did not specifically say that she was subjected to rape or sexual violence on 13 occasions, and that in separate communications with another bishop and cardinal, she did not explicitly mention the words rape or sexual violence. Additionally, the judge, while concluding that it is, quote, hard to believe the victim's explanation that she could not disclose in the presence of her companion sisters, also asks why she specifically did not describe penile penetration in her statement to the doctor. Uh, can you reflect on this reasoning by the judge? Uh, first and foremost, uh, I think uh, one needs to clarify here judge's own understanding of sexual assault. I don't know where he's getting his definition from, but I can definitely see that He's not abreast with all the amendments that have gone on, particularly the 2013 amendment, which expanded the narrow definition of rape as 
Pino vaginal uh, penetration to penetration uh, uh, by penis of any body bodily orifice like mouth, uh, anus, all of these come under the sexual assault now hmm. under the rape law and also um, fondling, uh, making the victim, uh, the abuser making the victim uh, um, do sexual acts like holding the penis and all of them come within the sexual assault category. Hmm. So now she's mentioned various things. So sometimes she says uh, penovaginal, sometimes she says not penovaginal, but uh, inserting fingers into her vagina. Would this constitute a rape? As per the 2013 amendment, it would. Because uh, inserting, not just inserting the penis in any bodily orifice, but also uh, inserting any other objects or fingers into her vagina would uh, would constitute rape as per section, amended section 375. Hmm. So whether she has said a sexual assault, uh, rape, making her do various acts, any of this, uh, it would constitute uh, offense under section 375. Hmm. Even further, if you analyze that statement, what's made to her companions, prosecution witness three and four, she says uh, she was very tense after a retreat. And when I asked her, why are you tense? She says, because of the visit of the uh, bishop. So she said, what happens if the bishop comes? And she says, he will force me to share his bed. Now, what happens in bed, in what context is said, we all know. Now, here the important element is forcing her. He is a supervisor. He is immediate boss, superior to her. Uh, coming to uh, the convent and there uh, she says there's no element of consent here very clearly she says he will force me and she's very uh, uncomfortable about it of course she does not uh, disclose that he's already done this but she only says that i uh, i'm afraid that he will make me do this he will make me do means non-consensual he will make her uh, share the bed is entirely non-consensual and we know what happens on, on the bed and what is the tension? What is their anxiety? So a lot of times a victim uh, use words like he did bad things to me, kharab kam, balatkar kar diya. So all these are in lay people's language constituted. Hmm. Now this, she's a nun. She's not exposed to all the sexual terms. You can't expect any victim to uh, understand the legal language, what's, what the, about the IPC says, what is rape, etc. Yes. And forcing her to share the bed itself connotes that non-consensual, a sort of a, a abuse of authority. Somebody is forcing her to do something against her will. She does not have the power to uh, resist it, which clearly shows that what is happening is without a consent. That means it amounts to rape. Hmm. Now, without a consent here also is very important considering he is a superior. He's visiting the convent. He is going to come in the night and do all these things to her. So I don't see what is the harm, what is the, what is the, how the, uh, her evidence is tarnished by using this. Very clearly evidence she gives on the first day, all the acts she, he has made her do, uh, which starts around page 44 of the judgment, where he says that he inserted his fingers into my vagina. He, uh, uh, forced uh, his penis into my mouth and he, he ejaculated on her face, he wiped with a dhoti 
all these are such descriptive terms that she has said in the court. And the judge is disbelieved her entirely. Hmm. And what reasons? That she is not a sterling witness. She's not a credible witness. We cannot go by what she's saying because she's saying different things at different times. According to me, when I read the judgment, she's saying the same thing all the time. Hmm. So this narrow interpretation takes us like 40 years back. Right. What constitutes consent? What constitutes non-consent? What constitutes sexual assault? What constitutes rape? These terms have gone through several changes. Oh, after the Mathura judgment, if you see in 1978, we have moved further and every time there has been an amendment, every time there is a new interpretation and a judge trying such an important case has to be very well conversant with these changes, which according to me, this judge seems to be not aware, not conversant, not familiar with the report. The judgment, ma'am, also doesn't seem to give much weight to the skewed power dynamic between the accused and the victim, a dynamic that would credibly explain the conduct of the victim following the incidents of sexual assault. Instead, what appears to confound the judge is how the victim nun could have travelled with the bishop as part of her duties after the alleged assault. How a victim responds or acts after acquaintance rape differs from that to stranger rape. Exactly. The crux of the matter here is that relationship. She's the mother superior of that convent. She's got uh, people, a team uh, working along with her um, who can be considered as a juniors or companions. And uh, here is this bishop coming all the way from Jalandhar to visit the convent to perform certain other uh, obligations or where he's supposed to perform as a chief priest, etc. Now, here what she does after the rape, she's called upon to perform her duties. If she doesn't want to disclose this uh, abuse at this moment, she has no other choice but to appear normal. Hmm. Because if she acts like sad, if she cries, etc., it will uh, arouse questions. She'll say, what is happening? What is happening? She will be forced to disclose what happened in the night. Right. She's not yet ready at that time. So she acts as much normal as possible. Very rarely do uh, victims immediately disclose to the police, to the authorities. For a long time, they just carry on. And when this abuse goes on and on and on, and when all her complaints uh, to the internal authorities within the church have not heeded any results, then only she goes and files a complaint to the police. Until that point, hmm. She tries to maintain normalcy. They seem to have a certain uh, image in her head. As soon as the rape is, uh, occurs, the behavior of the victim with the accused will change. She acts differently. She will not interact with him. Uh, she will move away. This is not what happens in actual life at all. So uh, the normalcy. Now we have an image that after rape, she will do this, she will do this. This is all the judicial myths that are created and societal myths that are created. She will cry, she will um, look distraught, uh, she, will, she will shun his company. This doesn't happen at all. In most cases, this just does not happen. Most cases are reported after like six months, one year, two years after the incident. Hmm. Until that point, the victim acts as normal as possible with the accused person. So I don't see anything abnormal happening in fact, this is the most normal thing. If the judge has 
dealt with uh, rape cases earlier, he would know this much that her behavior after the incident does not in any way discredit her or uh, uh, her, her statement what happened the previous night. Hmm. So that's a wrong conclusion that the judge has drawn here. The judge, in a way, approaches the evidence, according to me, with a biased mind. He's not giving her the same leeway he's given the accused. Yes. And constantly tries to puncture holes in her evidence, <laughs> in her behavior, in her approach, in her attitude. And that is what is wrong with this judgment. Uh, Ma'am, many jurisdictions across the world have rape shield laws that bar or limit the accused from using the victim's past sexual history as evidence in an attempt to discredit her. In India, only in 2002 did we do away with the clause in the Evidence Act that said when a man is prosecuted for rape, it may be shown that the prosecutrix, which is the victim, was of generally immoral character. The 2013 criminal law amendment in the wake of the Delhi gang rape provided a rape shield by introducing Section 53A that evidence of character or previous sexual ex experience is not relevant in cases of prosecution under certain cases of rape where the question of consent is an issue. Now, despite this, we saw in the Tarun Tejpal case, the trial court referred to the survivor's sexual history in lurid detail, so much so that the Bombay High Court, while issuing notices in the appeal, said that the trial court judgment which acquitted Tejpal appeared like a manual on how rape victims should behave. Even in the Franco case trial court judgment, it would seem that the nun failed the ideal rape victim test. The judgment makes a reference uh, to an affair that the nun allegedly had. Am I, am I missing something here in my understanding of the 2013 amendment? I mean, why is this still happening? Absolutely, that is forbidden by the law that he cannot use her past sexual history. And right. this is from like 2002 amendment to the Evidence Act under 153. Actually, there are like two points of similarities between the Tarun Tejpal acquittal judgment of the Sessions Court and the Franco Mulakal acquittal judgment. Now, in both these cases, there are two, two factors that are coming up again and again. The demeanor of the victim after the incident of rape. Hmm. In the Tarun Tejpal case also, uh, the... They have a video recording of the victim or survivor when she comes out of the lift. Mm. And according to the difference, she looked normal. She looked happy. She looked normal. Uh, she carried on with her duties, with the functions. Some uh, It was a literary festival that was going on. She was assigned certain duties. And she carried on with that. That makes the incident, that negates the incident, incident saying that it didn't happen. Had she been raped, she would have come out. She would have, like, Shouted, screamed, saying that this man has abused me in the lift. Whereas the fact that she continued with her responsibilities and she tried to look as normal as possible has gone against her. And uh, the judge has drawn adverse inference from that. Similarly, this in the Franco-Milical case, that the nun traveled with the accused and looked normal on the on the following day or after uh, on following. Uh, same uh, after several other inc incidences of violence, where next day she doesn't look uh, distressed, distraught, and carries on with the responsibility. Uh, the judge, both the cases have come to the conclusion that it did not happen. This is one thing common. Right. In both the cases, the judges have brought past sexual history to discredit the survivor. 
Tarun Tejpal case also this is very very obvious that she had friends, she has a boyfriend. She's not like denied that, but the fact that that she does not fit into the so-called normal or the judge's own creation of a virtuous woman, sexually not fitting the norm of so-called Indian society, etc. That that go that has been used against the law. It has been used to say that this woman uh, woman's testimony is not uh, reliable. Uh, it is not credible, and uh, uh, they punctured holes in this statement. Correct, Miss Agnes, ma'am. Uh, some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with this aspect of the Franco case that you are about to analyze. So, just let me quickly brief them. Um, the accused bishop's defense in court was that a cousin of the victim nun had approached the bishop with a complaint that the nun was having an illicit affair with her husband and that the bishop ordered an inquiry against the nun on that basis. As per the defense, it was then that the nun accused the bishop of rape in retaliation for him ordering an inquiry against her. Uh, Ma'am, please continue. This cousin's story, according to me, should not have been there at all. She has confided in her spiritual uh, mother, uh, whom she goes and talks Mm -hmm. sometime in 2014, that she has been abused. And uh, that nun also gave to co- came to court and gave evidence that uh, she, and uh, the nun um, prayed over her, uh, meditated, etc. to give, get the spirit, spiritual strength to combat. Hmm. Now here if you see, and then this letter by the cousin comes much later, two years later, whereas yes. this thing is going on. Uh, she's already confided with her companions also that she's scared when the bishop visits the convent, etc. Sometime in 2016, these allegations are made against her by Aruntar. The cousin is in Delhi. Bishop is in Jalandhar. You wonder why? You wonder why the cousin made this complaint at that particular point of time and who, in a way, instigated or caused this complaint to be filed. Nobody has inquired about that. But what is important, and uh, then she wrote this letter saying that uh, I am, uh, uh, she accused the nun of having a uh, sexual relationship with her own husband. But she came to court and she withdrew that complaint and she said that was a false complaint. After she said that, the defense has still relied upon her to make her look like a woman of easy virtue, to cast doubts about a character in the public mind, you keep asking, oh my God, if she did this, I mean, what kind of a woman she is hmm. to appear uh, in uh, common lingo, it's called like, uh, uh, not a virtuous woman, uh, 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 woman of easy virtue, uh, to cast doubts in the mind of the public, this has been done. And his judge has no uh, right to rely upon a document which the writer of that document herself has come into the witness box and has said that uh, this is a false. I had done this false case. It's a fabricated incident. Now, whether it is fabricated or otherwise, it is past sexual incident. Hmm. Nobody's case is that today she's having an effect. It is past. Can that pass sexual history? Whether it is true, whether it is validated, whether it is fabricated, cannot be used at all 
against her in a rape trial. The rape trial is not, uh, uh, cannot discredit her with something that happened past in her life. You have to only deal with the incidents that she's complained against. These are the issues to be tried. Not her character, not her uh, past history. And then here you have this other thing. And that's, I, I mean, there are two points here which are extremely disturbing for me. One is that her hymen is uh, told, medical examinations revealed that, and then just conveniently attributes to her illicit affair with the cousin's husband. Hmm. And not that uh, penile-vaginal penetration or finger penetration, which the accused caused her, which is very clearly said this. Right. I'm reminded of what uh, Justice Krishnayer once said, that a socially sensitized judge is a better armor against gender outrage than long clauses of a complex section with all the protections written to it. Um, is it the lack of training and sensitization of judges that leads to what we're seeing? You know, there's a lot of training happening in our country. The whole term training itself is being misused. Everywhere, National Judicial Academy, State Judicial Academy, all the time everybody is doing training. In fact, you remember this other case uh, where the judge made a comment about skin. There was no skin-to-skin -skin contact. Yes. Uh, I yes. could judge, uh, a lady judge, and now she is going to be demoted. Now, this judge is being demoted, saying that she doesn't understand enough about the subject. She needs more training and more explanation. This judge was a trial court judge in the Sessions Court before which we have litigated so many uh, repeaters of minors under POXO and got this secret conviction. More than that, she was the director of the Maharashtra Judicial Academy. She was structured in the courses. She was conducting the training. Now, what better exposure can she have? So there are these mindsets that don't change. These are very rigid mindsets that go right across the judiciary at all levels. We have that uh, an incident by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court where he asked accused that uh, they want to marry the victim at the highest level. Yes. How do we make these people accountable? There is no system beyond the Supreme Court the Chief Justice for accountability. Now, where lapses are happening at that high level, in the High Court, in the Supreme Court, etc. Uh, I mean, there might be few, uh, a few sensitive judges. There may be a few judges who are not really sensitive, but are well versed with the law and they will apply the law as it should be. And there are others who are able to camouflage their uh, gender bias uh, very well to their own articulation. And there may be others who are not able to do this. And it comes up. So the patriarchy runs so deep into our judicial system that it's very difficult to dislodge it, despite all the training that are happening. According to me, we never monitor the impact of our training. We just say that is come, do the training, go. How does our training, in fact, impact uh, their decisions after the training? Is there an assessment? Is there a monitoring? Is there an accountability? Hmm. Nothing of this is there. You have a budget to conduct the training. They just go back into their do the same thing. And nobody's bothered. They're concerned that we have to spend this budget. We have to conduct uh, X number of trainings. And we have done that. And they're like very complacent into this entire procedure. And so impact assessment we don't have. Whereas some countries have. Yes. After the training, 
the judgment they are supposed to submit, and the superior judges must assess to what extent the uh, or how much the training has them to change the mindset. We don't have any such things. So we have the Goa Goa Session Court judgment in the very high profile again certain case by case. Yes. Where it ended in acquittal. Uh, we have uh, many cases are there, but and then the latest blow comes from this judgment, which according to me has such high impact, particularly for nuns uh, within the Catholic uh, Church hierarchy, and also women in general. It's not just a Catholic women's issue. It is not a, only a nuns issue. It's it sort of questions the entire anti-rape movement of the last 40, over 40 years since the Mathura judgment in 1978. So we've gone several steps backwards. Right. And we have, uh, in a way, uh, it's, it's so glaring that uh, you may win one case here or one case there, but then there are several steps backward that we go all the time. Right. This is, uh, this is just so distressing. I hope that those that can affect change are listening. Flavia, ma'am, thank you for aiding our understanding of this case and placing in context what this verdict means uh, in the larger battle for gender rights. We have to keep talking. We have to keep this conversation going. For the moment, though, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.